Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to the show. It's good to be here again, buddy. We've got another home run for our guest today. Uh, man, we've been lucking out. And uh, before I steal your thunder with, uh, with our next guest, I'm going to let you finish up with our introduction. So we're on episode 68. And what little we've learned in just over a year we've done this is three things add up to ratings gold. One is find a legend in the industry, which we've lucked out and had a couple of. This guy certainly qualifies. Two is find really, really smart people. He clicks the box for that. And three, most importantly, get somebody with a really awesome accent. This guy is the triple threat. He hits all three. So if you've never heard of Alan Cosgrove, you're probably in the wrong industry. Uh, he's a legendary coach, educator, and presenter in the fitness industry who was born in Scotland, as you'll figure out very quickly through his accent. And now I'm going to have the second coolest accent on this podcast, Mike. Um, and so he, he started off with a, a sports martial arts background and then began reading and studying about training. And that led to uh, his degree in sports performance and then um, in sports science. And then he started Results Fitness with his wife, uh, Rachel, out in Santa Clarita, California, which has twice been named one of the top 10 gyms in America by men's health and women's health magazines. Uh, in addition to their gym, he and Rachel also own a professional consulting company called Results Fitness University. And as an author, Alan is a sought after expert for writing a, for a bunch of different publications for men's health, men's fitness, elite fitness, uh, 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 teen nation, bodybuilding, you name it. He's also been uh, co-author of a couple of books with Lou Schuller, including the new uh, rules of lifting series, as well as strong. And we are honored to have him. Alan, welcome. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Mike said it's a home run. I'm, I would reserve judgment on that case. The next four <laughs> minutes is awful. I'll try my best. <laughs> well, the good thing is we can edit, you know, anything that comes out terrible. So we should be good. But uh, so what, we're going to dive right in. Podcast comes out next week. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? All right. So uh, so you and Rachel have stood behind the claim uh, that you're looking to really change the way that fitness is done at Results Fitness. Explain what you saw early on in your career and, uh, you know, how the industry was sort of being carried out and what do you think has changed and and why did you decide, hey, this is something that I want to do? I think probably a better phrase would be, uh, we want to change the way the fitness profession is done, right? Like fit, no, maybe not fitness training itself, but somehow is a, something is a misinterpretation. Um, I, th I think I just, uh, I, I was never proud to say I was a personal trainer, right? Like looking at the guys around me and the average guy in the industry, like, I mean, you're probably, the people listening to this podcast are probably not the people I'm talking about, right? So um, I just was always like, like if I told you like my friend from Edinburgh was going to, come in the podcast on a second and, and join us and he's the number one um plastic surgeon in europe but he's the number one uh lawyer in scotland you, you're picturing a successful person and if you're another lawyer you'd be proud you know of that but when you you say here's my friend he's the number one personal trainer in london you don't know right like, you don't know you know what i mean right so i always thought like why aren't we looked at with that same type of I mean, if somebody owned five restaurants, you think of them as successful and, you know, good. If somebody was a chef, and, and most of us, right, I asked this at Perform Better one year, some of us have been doing this so long, you could have been a doctor and a lawyer, right? You spent so much time doing it. So I think it was just this, uh, you know, a frustration with the standards of our profession. And I use the term profession loosely with, with some of the other people. And I just really wanted to be seen as, as you know, 
a, a professional person who cared about people and it, it's it, it's I've said it's actually easy to succeed in this profession because the standards aren't that high and it hurts to, to say but it, it's true right so we've just decided that we wanted to be um my my worst critic would have to go that guy's a pro right like that's uh they're running a good organization over at results fitness and they got good people and and they help a lot of people so it, it's really been that that idea that drive that i mean if i said name of a weight loss tv show it, when you see those and you see the trainers on it are you so proud that these are our people Right, we're not right. If you see a, a trainer on Law and Order or CSI, probably the killer, right? If you see them on a comedy <laughs> show, it should be a, a meathead or like a ditzy, like you know, a dumb blonde girl type type idea, right? We're never portrayed as professionals, and it, we have to own it ourselves, right? Like in California uh, during the lockdown, liquor stores and marijuana stores were considered essential. Exercising was considered illegal. We do that to ourselves, right? Because it's about butts and buns and guns, right? And it's not about really helping people. So that's still my mission to this day is just to to raise the standards of our profession and you know, you know, be be the people that we, we deserve to be and get there's good people here. Like I said, the people listening to this podcast, you know I'm not talking about you guys, because you you know, you continue to, to listen and educate yourself. So uh, let's just you know step it up together. So when I think of your work, Alan, uh, I, I pulled a quote that I, that I thought you'd appreciate since you're a martial arts guy. It's Bruce Leo said, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. You've done a really good job of kind of blending and practically applying a lot of different methods and disciplines uh, into what you do. So what kind of has allowed you to make that soup and become this, as, as Kelly Strat says, that savage generalist? I think the um if, for those people who don't know who Bruce Lee is because he he I mean he passed in 1973 so we should have some younger audiences on but uh, Bruce Lee did a movie uh, Enter the Dragon in 1973 and the opening scene it looks like the UFC right they, they've got the same type of gloves on they got the trunks on and they they kick punch and end up and the fight ends up going to the ground with his submission um. 1993 was when the UFC first came around. She's 20 years ahead. And the idea was this, uh, another uh, Bruce Lee thing was to liberate yourself from the classical mess. Because at the time the UFC was created and uh, younger listeners won't realize that, it was created to uh, find out which was the most superior martial art when they went head to head. Now, unknowns to a lot of people, it was created by the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu family with a rule set that meant Jiu-Jitsu was probably going to win. Um, and it dominated for a while. And now we don't even talk about that. When they introduce the fighters, we don't talk about, here is Eric. Eric is a judo fighter. Uh, and here's Mike. He is a wrestler out of Louisiana, right? They'll describe you as a, a mixed martial artist. And they may describe you as having a good ground game or a good stand-up game. Because the jiu-jitsu dominated in the beginning because no one knew how to fight off their back. And then once guys started to understand to defend the takedown, kickboxers won for a while because the jiu-jitsu guys and the wrestlers couldn't handle that. Then they all learned striking defense and the wrestlers dominated for a while. And now you can't come in with one skill set anymore. The game the game is over right? if you're coming in with that. So that's kind of always been my approach to training is that um, it bodybuilding work. Well, of course it does. Otherwise, it'd be called bodybuilding, right? It works. Does it work for an athlete trying to drop a weight class? Maybe not, right? There's, there's mobility work. There's Pilates work. Um, there's, I've always had this thing like, a, are you an Olympic lifter guy or a powerlifting guy? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I feel like these are asking a doctor, hey, are you like a, you know, do you like a ibuprofen guy? Are you like more of a Tylenol guy? Like, these are just tools, right? So I, I've always felt, if you walked in results fitness at certain times, it, it, it might look like calisthenics and Pilates place. Right. And other times it'll look like a you know hardcore powerlifting. Right? But these are just I just feel like they're they're I think it was my own insecurity of not understanding training that led me to just like you, you go to you come out of college and you you know everything. And then I, I went to an Olympic lifting set and I was like, man, I don't know anything. And then I went to Paul Check and I was like, oh, I really don't know anything. Right. And then you listen to a one set to failure guy and you're like, oh, some of this makes kind of sense, right? Like and just my own my own sort of intellectual restlessness was to try to find the answer as the one true system. What was the one best martial art? What is the one best fitness training system? And the answer is none of the above, right? The 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 question if you if you want to do 
at 5k, you might want to do some running. Just throwing it out there, right? Like you might need to have an endurance training program. And if you're doing powerlifting, perhaps not so much. But it was really my own uh, curiosity to try to, to find the answers. And I'm still looking, to be honest. But as a result, it, it comes that um, the answer is, is uh, I, and, I, and I mean it respectfully, Matt, the answer is probably closer to the CrossFit uh, modality and description that, that I feel a lot of CrossFit gyms don't practice. This idea that we have multiple qualities that we could train. I, I don't feel like that's the answer for everybody, but there are the and I can't throw out any training method. I mean, I've thrown out a few that are just terrible, but we won't bring them up. But the uh, the idea of that that the answer to the training methodology might just be bodybuilding, right? That may be the answer for this skinny kid, right? It may be something else, it may be circuits, it may be interval training. But I just was on everything that I looked at at a certain point seemed to, to have it. I mean, the, even the one set to failure guys, well, if that didn't work, why would two sets work? Two times nothing would still be nothing, right? So one set has to work, right? And then you start looking at, at if you look at maybe some of the powerlifting methodology, um, the difference, the commonalities are, are, of that were the intensity and the execution with maybe a bodybuilding machine program, but the movement patterns were similar and the execution was similar. So the modalities perhaps weren't really important. So I guess the, the, the reason for it, that, that I want as much as Bruce Lee, I think was the godfather of mixed martial arts. I've always approached training like that, that I don't want to pick a team. I want everything. The answer in a fight might be a kick. It might be a, a grappling situation, but you, if you went in with only one tool, nothing, you're going to be in trouble. And I feel training's the same way as I, I don't, I didn't, when the TRX came out, I, I didn't want it to work. Right. Because then I have to rewrite all my shit, right? Like, i got to put everything together. You, you can't ignore it. I didn't want kettlebells to be good. I really didn't want sandbags to be good. But, man, you can't ignore that stuff when you start seeing the results. And it, you, you've got to adopt it into, into your own your own martial art, right? Well, I think one of the things is, and we talk about it on a course, that, that there's safety in our silos. Like, it feels warm and cozy when I'm the kettlebell guy. Because I'm going to surround myself with all kettlebell people. And I think the whole world revolves around the cleanest snatch, the swing and the get up. Right. And so there's, there's a lot of discomfort once we kind of peek out of that silo and look the other way. I remember when it was funny, you mentioned Paul check. I did two levels of Paul's internship and I had a guy, actually another strength coach I was doing a camp with come up to me. He's like, I can't talk to you. You're a check guy. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, well, you're a Czech guy. I don't believe in that stuff. I go, well, you know, I'm also a Poliquin guy and I'm also a great cook and I'm also Mike Boyle. And I'm also like, do you need me to keep going? Like, you're just one guy? Uh, that's and the like, real part, right? Like, if you went to a martial arts thing, you wouldn't be like, I can't talk to you. You do Kung Fu. Right? <laughs> I'm a kickboxer. It's absurd in any other field, right? But it, it, like yeah. It's just a weird thing that I am, um, that the... That Bruce Lee quote, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own, is, is um, that idea that there's something there that's useful and there's something there that might not be. Uh, and both of those may be specific to you or in our world, our client, that this this could be the answer, right? And it could be a terrible choice for someone else. But it, it's uh, I think you're right, is that there's this, um, and I think that martial arts example is a good one, is that the... You know, the, the karate guys didn't accept that, you know, a wrestler could beat them. The wrestlers didn't think that they could not be taken down, right? And then you start realizing that there's a different world out there. And I, I just think it's naive of us to not look at other training systems. But when I when I say this stuff, it sounds like I've got this massive box of every certification in the world. Some stuff doesn't cut it, right? Some stuff doesn't work when you get into the octagon in the UFC, right? So... Uh, some training methodologies don't stand the test of time. Um, I, I think a, a good example is the the TRX. I feel like eliminated a lot of stability ball work from my programming. It just was a better tool for what I was trying to do. So I, I have, I think I still have a stability ball in the gym, but I have like twelve TRXs. So that's an example of that that suspension training, that top down instability was was better than the bottom up one for for most of our clients. So it wasn't that the the stability ball um, wasn't any good. It's just that something else came along and this became a little bit discarded. So 
you know, you were talking about keeping what works and discarding what does not. And, uh, you know, I own my own facility. We have a pretty significant group training program. And look, when you're, you know, as well as anyone, right, when you're designing a group training program, you need to pick a lot of what works. So, you know, one of the things that you did, and, and I really appreciate this because I've absolutely stolen at least part of this from you. So I appreciate that. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, the coaches forget about. You can't steal anything when I'm giving it away. I'm always clear on that. <laughs> Fair enough. You can't be a teacher and be mad someone learns. So it's all yours, Mike. Feel free to use anything. Love it. All right. Love it. So, you know, one of the things that you did uh, is you kind of reverse engineered and you set your facility up to match the flow of your training sessions. And uh, that's something that honestly, before you did it, I really never heard of that. So what was it about that? Like, how did you come up with that idea? So everything that you see is really a solution to a problem, right? It was in a small facility, how can I maximize my space? And a lot of your uh, training time becomes this like, like we we wanted to pair a squat with with a roll, but the cable machine's the other end of the gym. So we lose all this this training time. Um, and it just became like, where would I warm people up? And what would I do after that? Well, let me just make it easy to for flow that once you finish this section, the, the equipment you would use would be here, right? So we kind of, the original idea when the small space was to move through the gym kind of in, in a circle, right? So you move to the next section. And you know what does it really well is, is Mike Boyle's guys. They've got like the next groups coming in in like 12 minutes. You got to be off the warm up area in 12 and then a core or whatever they do next. But that was the idea is that, um, and, and I, when people ask me that, like what, what equipment should I get? My first question is what's your training philosophy? Like if, what does your training philosophy look like? And that will determine your equipment. And then what does a session look like, right? What, what would that look like and how would that flow? Because once you dial that in, in a small space, you can add an extra person per hour, right? Because we're not, we're not taking up, we're, we're, we're using the equipment. So that the idea being is I, I, and a conveyor belt is a horrible term, but that's what I wanted to create. This idea that the client arrives and goes through the, the training program and, and finishes is almost through the gym in a, in a circle. And, you know, they finish the same place as they checked in. And ideally they have their, um, their, their post-workout nutrition uh, there. So it's just like a complete circle. But again, solution to a problem it was, is that how do I fit more people in without it just being a complete cluster with everybody crossing over and, and sharing equipment? Like uh, that if you if you always pair two exercises together, right? If you always pair, you know, a, a core with a medicine ball throw, well, put the medicine balls in that same section where you do core, right? Make it easy for yourself. So that that's really the idea was like, Looking at, um, we we don't run a gym, we run a training center, and this is what the workout is going to look like, and slightly different for everybody, but that same concept is that, what's the next obvious piece of equipment, and let me make it close for the client. Now, I think what's important that you said is not only buy the equipment to match your training philosophy, but it should also match your clientele. I remember there was a, a guy when I was opening up my facility a bunch of years ago, he hired Charles Charles Poliquin to come in and set up his facility. And it was amazing. He had, you know, all this incredible strength equipment and chains and all these things. The only problem was he was training like 45-year-old housewives. Like this isn't applicable for who you're working with. That woman's never going to get on that $2,000 glute hand bench that you just bought. So have the foresight, I think, to to predict who it is you actually want to work with as the end user. Well, we used to have it too. It's interesting, Sarah, Eric, because you you three of us are very comfortable in the gym. You don't feel intimidated, right? Like you just you come in and you're, you're fine, right? You spend more time in it than you've you've not. Um, you used to walk in my gym and you'd see the heaviest dumbbells in the squat rack just as soon as you walked in, right? Now you don't think of that as uh, being intimidating because we're not intimidated, but it can be for beginners. So I've moved it that my kind of squat racks are a little out of the line of sight when you first walk in. My heaviest dumbbells, you'd have to look for them, right? Everything looks kind of open, and that's by design. Like if if I walked into like a kickboxing facility and like there was full contact fighting and you know teeth on the floor and blood everywhere, like I I'm I found my home, right? But you wouldn't take your daughter there. You wouldn't you wouldn't take her there and feel comfortable, right? And it, that's not a question on the instructors. That's not a question on anything other than your initial imp impression. So your equipment does have to match your clientele, right? And uh, the glute, the big glute hams are, well, for me in my space, like that's the size of my car. I can't park my car inside my gym with one of these things, right? For for what's essentially, a, a, there's a couple of exercises you can do on that. 
powerlifters don't get mad at me. There's a couple of exercises you can do in that, but it's largely a single piece of equipment that takes up a lot of space. Uh, that doesn't fit in my my uh, facility design philosophy. I need multiple use equipment, right? So I, I have a little floor version of, of one of those that I can flip up and put away. But yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're, you do, it does have to match who you're training and I feel it has to be multiple use. I, I know at one point we had uh, the collegiate um, racks and they had the huge platforms that were just unnecessary. I, I had nobody power lift in that much, right? Um, and we had the the chin and bar was like the collegiate one, which is like eight feet in the air, right? So I, nobody could just jump up and grab the chin and bar. So we, I mean, we bought them and they were great, but then you're like, you know, that that's a little ug, a little jam in the system. You know, that you're, I need to have steps for my clients to climb up. I can't spot somebody on a chin up because they're 40 feet higher than me, right? So it, it does, it's a, it's what's your training philosophy and who's your target market, right? And then and we take it in from there. So let's discuss when you're, when you're doing um, group training, semi-private training, the impact of community and, and support systems. And you were one of the pioneers that kind of brought semi-private uh, into the lexicon of personal training. Talk a little bit about the difference of traditional one-on-one -on -one versus semi-private versus group training and how that community and support system um, element fits into all that. I get credited a lot for inventing it. I have to say, I'm sure someone was doing it before me, but I do know I had no one to ask. I didn't know who to turn to to ask how to do that. So um, we define, uh, for the, the record, one-on-one -on -one training, everybody knows what it is. We define semi-private as it's people doing different programs with one head coach supervising it, right? We call it Matri D system that uh, we're around, um, but they're, they're on different programs. Small group is people are like, we are three of us working out together, right? Doing the same, maybe we change the weights or something, right? But uh, we're just, we're doing the, the pretty much the same program. So uh, semi-private was a solution to your problem. Um, I was doing one-on-one -on -one training. Um, my schedule was full. Uh, we had Rachel, my, my wife, doing one-on-one -on -one training. Her schedule was full and we hired a, a staff member and her schedule was full and our bank accounts were not full. But the gym was completely packed because now there's six people in a small space. Then I realized that I could train probably three to four myself, right? So the first part was the solution to a problem is could I train more people at a time without going to completely genetic training, which I'm fine with, by the way, but could I just keep the program the same? and just supervise at the same time. And then one time I actually made a, a scheduling error and I had two guys show up at the same time. And they were on, they were very similar demographics and we finished, the last exercise was kind of like a gut gun show stuff where they had arm curls and dips, right? And both guys PR'd, uh, with the same coach in the same program, both guys PR'd because they were there together and they were, they were having fun just training hard. So my, my second thought was, I thought maybe the small group, the semi-private model would allow me to scale up and maybe there'd be a drawback and the results wouldn't be as good, right? Because I, I, I wouldn't get the same interaction, the same supervision. But I, I, over the years, I found that not to be true. I think one-on-one -on -one is inferior in every aspect. That physical therapy, stroke rehab, cardiac rehab, spinal rehab are all done in groups right? They, they see people high level um, strength and conditioning with professional athletes are done in groups. So we've got this zone in between that we've traditionally done one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I used to teach how to do semi-private. Now I just ask the audience to tell me why one-on-one -on -one is better and back it up with real evidence because there's none. It's not better. The group dynamic uh, changes it. And from a, a model from, from everybody's business, it stops being like if the three of us are working out together every Monday night, every Wednesday night, every every Friday we we blow off legs and we go get beers. Um if we're meeting together <laughs> three times a week and the coach changes, we'll stay at the gym because it's not just about the coach, it's about us. Right. It's about the three of us being together. And we'll we keep each other accountable and we push each other a little bit. Because we'll I'll watch clients and they'll be like, hey when like Eric, when are you coming in next? And you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not until uh, Thursday morning. You're like, all right, I'm gonna, I'll come Thursday morning too. I'll see you in here, right? And it becomes like more than just the trainer-client relationship, and it becomes the client-client. Like if, if you were gonna train for anything, right? Uh, you're gonna train for the UFC or, you know, a 10k race or an obstacle course race. 
wouldn't it be better to have a couple of guys training with you? That's kind of kind of the idea. Like it's not just the coach; it's like the, the camaraderie of it. You watch guys, you watch the little highlight things of boxing matches, and you see guys training. It's, you see them training together. Like there'll be other guys working out, and there's there's something there. Like like people don't want to be on their own, right? They just generally don't like like uh, I I tell this joke: if you go out to to dinner with your wife or girlfriend and another couple, and one of the ladies needs to use the restroom, there's a field trip from the table. They all go together. They don't even want to pee on their own, right? And most guys will want to watch, like I'll, I'll watch soccer, boxing, I'll watch sports, and I would rather watch it with people than just silent in my room. And then when it comes to exercise, we try to, to separate that instead of taking advantage of it. So again, solution to a problem that it became, I think, a, a superior way of, of, like it's just a delivery system of your knowledge as a coach, right? So um young coaches might not be able to to handle you know three or four people at a time but that's not I mean that doesn't mean one-on-one is a superior in every aspect when you look at the, the research uh probably due to group dynamics and energy is that the group format produces uh, better results and from the business it allows you to have a you know more clientele and and for the client it allows a lower barrier to entry because you know to fill up my schedule one-on-one is is would, would be a little more expensive than if you join one of my my groups right so it, everybody wins right hey everybody a quick break in the action here hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening we're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week so if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on it would be greatly appreciated Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So speaking of solutions for client success, we know that it comes down to habits and consistency. And one of the things that I've been reading that that you started to do lately is is rather than saying, well, here's your cardio workout, because none of us are going to get paid to stand by somebody while they're on the treadmill or the Stairmaster, whatever it is. So we have to prescribe some sort of cardio prescription, but you've been moving towards just let's look at how many steps you get. And, and that ends up getting back sometimes better activity throughout their day. Is it just a habit of, of just spontaneous physical activity? Talk about how that kind of mind shift has come about and like what other tricks have you used to kind of install good daily habits like that? So the, the caveat to that, obviously, if you're training for a, a cardio event, like I got to maybe have a little higher intensity work attached to that. But for a general fitness body comp uh, people, uh, I'm of the opinion that um, like aerobic work doesn't move the needle that much anyway beyond the calories burned, right? 30 minutes on, on a treadmill will be, if you're really pushing it, right? And, and with accurate measurement, maybe somewhere around, you know, 270 to 300 calories, 90 to 10 calories a minute, right? So you would need to do something like 12 sessions of those before you would burn off the equivalent of a pound of fat. So it's just a measure of activity, right? Like, again, we're not talking cardio health. Now, what I found, and there was, there's a good study on this, and they, they did it with um, a, a senior population, and, and they went from two uh, strength training sessions and two cardio sessions a week. And these people had an upregulation of their non-exercise activity by about 200 calories right so they burned calories during training and then the rest of the day because they felt good they burned a little bit more right so there were there were another 1400 a week just in movement and then they put another group uh, demographically indistinguishable and put them on three plus three so three strength three uh, cardio and what they found is that these people reduced their daily activity by about 100 calories now that doesn't sound like a lot but you realize one goes up 200 and one's down 100 that's a 300 switch that's 2,000 calories a week. That's a day of food, right? So the extra training sessions were canceled out by them being tired, right? That they moved less because they were fatigued from training. So when I was looking at body comp people, my first thing was that this was my spell check that the program was working. If your steps dropped, right? If your steps dropped below below a number, and the, I, I choose 10,000. I just seen a study yesterday, actually, that it seems to be lower than that. That, that there seems to be a, a major jump, like going from 4,000 to 8,000 is a big jump uh, after eight, maybe not, a, not as much, but I, I chose 10 to, to make it easy. Uh, we will add training if we can keep those steps up, 
right? And the second those steps drop, I'm pulling back on training. And then it became like, if you were really active every day, Eric, and you were given like 12,000 steps a day and you're trying to st- like do a body comp phase with me, I don't think that 20 minutes in the treadmill is going to make much difference at that point. Now, if you're a desk job eight hours a day and you're like, I'm, you know, at the end of an eight hour day, I've taken 3000 steps. All right. We might need to get on the bike and do a little extra work. Right. So if we're u- using it for um, energy burning purposes to create a deficit, uh, we anything that we do that impacts the the, the neat the non-exercise activity thermogenesis the normal movement uh, of day-to-day living is a negative so you could add that and you'll see it if you go to the olympic training center you're watching these athletes training super hard and they walk like they're in slow motion man they're so tired from training like they, 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 they conserve every piece of energy they have that's great when you're doing four hours of training a day as an elite athlete but for our clients it, what I was finding was, and the science backs it up, is there's a threshold where there's that there's an energy constraint hypothesis where the body starts to move less as a result of your exercise, and there's going to be a point where it's a wash, right? And in that example, going from two to three to three three, ended up being a 300 calorie a day uh, energy difference. That's significant, I mean, that's 2,100 calories a week. So I don't know if that would level out over time. So we. I, I do prescribe cardio still, but I look at it in terms of if I'm doing this for a body comp purpose, I'm doing it for calorie burning. And if you're already moving a lot, I, I doubt this moves the needle. 20 minutes, three days a week, I doubt moves the needle at all, right? So it, we start with that. That um, And uh, a friend of mine, Stan Efferding, that I, I um, he wrote a book called The Vertical Diet. He was, uh, was out in Moscow with, with him a few years ago. And uh, he, he showed me a good study that... Uh, a 10 minute walk after meals outperformed doing like 40 minutes of cardio a day that little dose of just really just getting your steps in that's about a thousand steps for people right so it's like a i call it the get out of cardio free card if you keep your movement up i won't i won't put you on the treadmill if your movement drops off you you owe me the treadmill and with one of my body comp clients as like for every thousand he was below ten thousand he owed me two thousand steps so if he's at 9,000, I'm like, you got, you got to get on the treadmill for 20, right? You got to go 11. Uh, but it's just that idea of um, if, if what we're trying to do is increase the activities of daily living and have these people move a, a little bit more, then it doesn't always have to be formal exercise. And sometimes that formal exercise causes them to go to bed just a little bit earlier, wake up a little bit later, move a little bit less, and then you've ca- canceled it out. It's why sometimes a hard training program the client generally is training hard and is eating uh, well, but their body is is not a calculator. Their body is figuring out. Like you, you have to like nudge it slightly. So that's we call it our the, it's the ten thousand steps rule is uh it really but it really started as when I added training. If your activities of daily living stopped dropped, that was my sign we were we were moving the wrong direction. You know, one of the things I think we've done as an industry has done a really shitty job of making people think that fitness has to be in these packages, that it has to be an hour or it's, it doesn't count. Right. And, and so like when I've been moving towards with like cardio prescriptions and say, look, I want this much per week, I don't care how you get to it. And I'd actually almost prefer if it was in smaller bites, because similar to some of the research you were talking about, there was some research, I don't know if you saw it, where they took people and put in the control group was 30 minutes of cardio. And the other group was three 10 minute bouts of cardio. Like instead of one exercise bout, they did a walk in the morning, walk at lunch, walk after work. And that three uh, time per day group had higher compliance and, and better, just as much net calories burned, if not more. So the fact that we think it has to come in this one hour package is just really shitty marketing on our end. Yeah, I think that maybe the study that Stan pointed out to me was that idea of these like small doses. And it actually, I think one of them seemed to be a little bit better for uh, blood sugar regulation with the, the multiple exposures. Um, I think I've started playing it with some of the strength training stuff too, is that, uh, you know, instead of it like, you know, five sets of five or whatever, I'm like, uh, just you know, I need 25 reps, however you want to get it. Right, like so, you, you first set, you might want to get six. You might like just a, a little bit of autonomy. Is I I doubt there will be a difference. Um, if you could do it as one set of twenty five with with the reasonable weight, right, or five sets of five. If those weights were the same, does it? Do you think four sets of six in a single versus five sets of five there'd be any difference? 
so as a little part of that that I, i've been playing with with too is just um like we 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 also do a poor job of like a, I just wrote about this actually. That I used to believe there was strength training and then there was cardio, and there were these two boxes that had to be checked. But what about like um, kettlebell swings? Is that strength or is that cardio? I feel like it's in this zone of both or none. Like, but there's power in this zone too, right? Like sled, like a heavy lunge is strength multiple lunges a little more cardio a sled push is cardio as is uphill running as is running but that's just like a, a a continuum i think we should surf it right we should be playing at both ends and in the middle right like so you you can get a lot of um benefits that again it's not just boxes of time it's this now i'm doing cardio like uh you'll see people i think it was a uh, jen sinclair used to, to people she was her weight training program and people go, what do you do for cardio? And it's because I lift weights faster, right? That's our idea is like, there's still an effect. There's still a metabolic effect of doing some type of circuit thing. So I think that to your point is yet, yeah, it, it could be smaller. I mean, the Tabata protocol, which very few people actually do, by the way, was, was less than four minutes, right? But uh, that's not how most people are, are doing it. But the, the idea that you have to hit 20 minutes or 30 or 45 is, is not... It, it practically becomes an issue, but it's not even, you know, founded in science anymore, right? We don't, we can't say, oh, you stopped at 19. Well, no results for you, right? That's not how it works, right? So, uh, and I, I think that, um, I, I also want to say that I think when we say we've done a poor job, I, I like to think we all did the best we knew how, right? Like we've learned, we've learned more and our programs have, have uh, you know, evolved and adapted, but, and I, I can remember writing, 30 minutes cardio on an empty stomach for fat burning right? and it just is sorry everybody that i made get up early and be hungry that i was wrong that didn't work any better <laughs> so uh we're gonna we're gonna change gears a little bit and talk about um you know the business a little bit more and um one of the things that eric and i discuss a lot about when we're teaching is the idea of retention right retention is is so important yet people talk about acquisition so one of the things we always say is like, look, a really, really good training program that's based off of principles is one of the keys to client retention, but people don't think of it that way. Why don't you, why do you think that people sort of discard uh, the idea of program design in general? Uh, I'll be a blunt. It gives them an out for shitty programming, right? That's the, the real answer. <laughs> if, if you were, and I've experienced this with uh, I, for listeners, I had um a couple of bouts of cancer back up quite a while ago and I had issues afterwards with the endocrine system and, and thyroid and going to one doctor um things weren't getting better right so I sought out another doctor the first doctor was arguably nicer and it was easier for me to go and not got did not get me the result I was looking for so I I looked elsewhere for that I mean there's a lot of things you can do in in a, with retention you know you know culture recognition trust community that they're they're all big parts of it but at the heart of it is the the results themselves and I'm going to take it even a step further perhaps they get no results but the process of training with you is so much fun because this program is excellent and I really enjoy it Right. It's, it's fun and I like coming in and I do it and I only get a little bit. I saw somebody write this up a little while ago that and it set up quite nicely. He goes, I've had a client for three years and I'll be honest, he hasn't gotten any stronger. He really hasn't lost any body fat and he just comes in three times a week. He doesn't miss a session, but I don't know how much better he's getting. But I've enjoyed the last three years of training this 87 year old man. And I'm like, well, you, that guy may have backslid if it wasn't for you, first of all, right? So well done. But the results he got was perhaps more about maintaining and the community of, of training at your place, right? So I think like uh, the program itself, I, I believe it has to get people to their destination, right? If you, if you got on a plane and it circled around for four hours and you landed back where you took off from, you're going to be upset, right? So it's got to take you to where you want it to be. But that process is, is overlooked sometimes that it has to be a good time. And I, I, I take training serious, but I, I don't make it serious. Like if you know me, I'm kind of like, I'll be joking around and, and having a sense of humor with people. But uh, I, it, I think we, 
we should take it seriously, but we can make it fun, right? And it should the process itself. But the original point is that the, the reason I think it's overlooked is because it's uh, it you don't have to like look at your average result in the mirror, right? If I came in and took a client's training diary and I pulled up a year ago and pulled up an exercise that says dumbbell row, uh, how much more are they lifting today? Right. And maybe it's not much, but that's the, you should be able to audit your programs and you say, you know, like I, I, I think that when the first new rules of lifting book, it was all four. We wrote that was three or all four and it still sells today. And it bugs me because that's not like, I do, that's not what I do anymore. Right. Like we've kind of evolved, but I think it, it is um the, 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 come for the results and they may stay for the community but that doesn't mean results become unimportant right that the the experience of training with you and the community is a big part of it but uh, just don't get please don't get my words twisted everybody that's listening is um you somebody should be getting better with you or at, at the very least in that earlier example of the 87 year old man gentleman that uh they should be maintaining some level of quality of life and, and just everything in their life. We have a saying that we want to be the best part of our members' day every day, right? That you're This is your seventh hour on the floor a day training your clients, but it's their only hour with you. And you you got to make it, you, you got to make it great. You got to rock the mic and make it great. Well, I, I think something you said there resonates with me now, 25 years in, way more than it would have you know, Eric, that started 24 years ago was the, what your expectation of success is and being able to frame that. And there's an expression I actually just heard today is that, you know, about sometimes you don't need to be the best, but you need to be the best to all the other alternatives. And so, you know, a story that sticks out in my mind is one of the athletes I trained as a college kid. Um, he said, you know, I go, he has some, just, I just give him his, some basic work he does on his own at a big box gym. And he said, you know, coach, there's this guy who who's there every day and he's a big fat guy. And he says, all he does is lift weights. And uh, should I go up and tell him he needs to be doing cardio instead? And I said, if there's a big fat guy at the gym and he keeps showing up, your number one job is to go up and say, hi, how are you? Make him feel comfortable and become his friend. That's it. If he yeah. keeps showing up. That's a win. That's true. I mean, I think you're also like, a, what if that big fat guy has lost 300 pounds already and knows more about fat loss than any of us, right? Like <laughs> I can't take this snapshot. Like, I don't know. This guy could have transformed himself. But yeah, it, it's um, our, our, I mean, I want to make fitness training better and I want to make the profession better, but most people don't go to the gym and most people in the gym don't use a coach and most people don't show up regularly. So that guy's checking most of my boxes, right? Like that guy's already checking most of my boxes. It's the, I think it's a, a Thomas Plummer line. Like we got to try to motivate the metal man off the magnetic couch, right? That That's our goal. But yeah, I think that's the, the, the part is that, uh, man, that guy's in, you know, uh, training, training hard, and and uh, like uh, I'm, I'm with you. Like you know, well done. Like I just want to be his friend, right? I just want to congratulate him. And uh, like I said, is I don't know the the battle that anybody's fighting, right? He may have been down two hundred pounds already, and be a, you know, the the world's foremost expert on fat loss, as far as I'm concerned, right? So that that sometimes you see a guy like that, right, and you realize that his his transformation alone outperforms all your clients in the last three months, right? Like all your clients together, he, he, he beat you by just his, his, uh, and, and that's the other part, like, man, that consistency and intensity it takes you a long way, man. Right. And, and that's why some poorer coaches can do very well financially because they've got, they bring the energy, right. They, they're, they're trying their best. They bring the energy and they push people hard. Right. And as people improve because of that, and if they combine that with a with good programming and you know, listen to this podcast, the results would be magical. But with those first three, they bring in the energy, the consistency, and the intensity. Uh, a magical program is nothing; it doesn't exist. All right, so let's go back to to kind of your evolution as this savage generalist. And and as anybody who's watching the video of this, they can see you got a a, a mahogany, a rich mahogany uh, bookcase behind you, uh, with, filled with many leather bound books. Um, 
you're big on reading. You offer a free reading list uh, to that I've actually signed up and gotten myself. Um, but talk about how you read from outside of training. It's those aren't all training books behind you. You're reading sales, personal development, time management. So as a coach or trainer, how do we get better at learning those things? So the the first thing is I think now I think when when I went to to college, I think we were all about the same age. That finding information was actually challenging, right? You had to seek it out and and find it and. Uh, it, that was a challenge. Now, now um, young coaches have the reverse, is that to filter information is, I did my, my, my undergrad thesis on creatine, and there's maybe 45 studies in the world at the time, right? Uh, now, if you put creatine into you know, Google, there'll be a million hits. Even in the scientific journals, there's hundreds of thousands. And by the time you read the first thousand, there'll be another 500. So a young coach now has to, to filter information uh, a little harder. So I, I think that I'm, um, one of the the ways that I I, I liked reading, uh, but now there's with, with YouTube and with podcasts, there's other uh, ways of learning. So I think committing to learning is more important than just just reading. Um, it, back in my day, there there were no real audio programs. Right? There were no podcasts. My wife actually during lockdown, she started uh, listening to audio books doing cardio. Like she competes at Ironman uh, triathlons and stuff. So. And I'd never done that. I'd kind of just put music on. And I, so that kind of flipped for me too, that I'd listen to podcasts training, right? I'd get some education and uh, doing doing cardio. So I think um, a good rule is, uh, and I got this from, from uh, Martin Rooney, I believe, is that uh, don't, don't believe everything you read, but also don't just read everything that you believe. Go challenge yourself and read a book that's outside of your, your training area. Like go, go, if you're a, you know, a ballistic kettlebell, Olympia lifting guy, go read a, a book on by Arthur Jones on or, or Ken Hutchins on super slow training and machine training and find a few things in there that still apply. And then a, a good rule I, I do is uh, any, I audit like myself every kind of 90 days. And like, if I look at the training process, like uh, do I, do I get results? Do I, do I keep people? Then, then I need more clients. Are, are people coming in not signing up? Then I, I don't understand sales. I should learn that because I can't help people if I can't bring them in. And if everybody that comes in and sees me signs up, then I'm good at sales, but I don't have enough people coming in. Then I better understand marketing. And marketing is just communicating your message. It doesn't mean advertising. It means communicating your message. You could be putting out free content. But if you don't understand that, how are you going to help people? Right, because it's you, we've all known the guy who's he's, he's really good at the thing, but no one knows he's there because he has this weird like, I don't market at all. That's like I all my results are for all my clients are from word of mouth. Like you're just admitting you don't know what you're doing and that and getting your message out there. And if you're the cure to cancer, wouldn't you want people to know? And that that's how I feel about our training program. I feel we're so good. I can help everybody. That they have to know about it. So when you start looking like that then you realize that the, the same books that you read on training, the same articles and websites that you went to in training, there's people who exist in the sales world who are that person. There's people who exist in marketing who are that person. When you have a team, you got to learn. Like, like I've always felt like the first thing that most of us did professionally in sports was be a trainer. And now you don't have a coach. Now you don't have a business coach, right? When you were, when I was learning Taekwondo, I had a coach. When I was learning to swim, I had a teacher. All through my life, I had coaches and instructors. And so when you open your business, I feel like you, there's holes in your game. And you can, at a certain income level, to be honest, a level of success is you try to identify who you want to work with, not what you need to learn. But when you're coming up as a, a younger coach, you've got to learn the, the topics. You've got to learn the um the different sort of areas. So you're going to look at uh, what, what books to pick up and what courses to do. So a good rule I use is a, a five, five, three, one uh, rule. And um, if you want to learn marketing, you, even if you just go to Amazon and you look at the top five books on marketing and, and you buy them, you should be able to read a book a week, right? Or a book every month, whatever. Right. But if you look at the top five books on marketing and pick them up, uh, that'll be the first thing. Then, I would look at three audio courses or even podcasts in the area that you're wanting to learn and consume them. And then there's magic in live events, as you can speak to Eric. There's, there's more to perform better events than just the topics in the rooms, right? The, the conversations in the hallways and the other people that you meet. 
So, I mean, if I wanted to learn, really get into like business, I'd get five business books, three business podcasts or audio programs, and I go to one live event uh, in 90 days. At the end of that, you'll probably be better than most people, right? You, that's how you you expand. So, I, I think it's just this understanding that there's um there's the the holes in your game. As a I, I used the phrase when we first opened Results Fitness that with my degrees and all my certifications, I was probably a black belt in training, but I was a white belt in business and operations. I had no idea of billing or anything like that, right? So the the idea being is that anything that you want to learn, there's someone is the best in the world at it. And uh, all you gotta do is invest, you know, a few dollars and getting their getting their books and educational material and uh, studying it. And it's a, uh, um, when once you get into the habit of of learning, and I, I whatever, a ten minutes a day or something, it just adds up. Like uh, putting a podcast on on the commute to work instead of you know the, the sports radio, that'll move the needle, and you start start to move the needle. Like I've always said, most of us never tried to learn a song. Like I'm probably showing my age, "Living on a Prayer" by Bon Jovi or, or "Don't Stop Believing," um, but we just heard it, and it gets embedded into your brain. So audio courses can be like that too, that you just, you, you put the time in and, and you, you'll soak it in. So it, it, it feels like something's even if you're reading and you're not taking it in, some of it's going in, right? You're downloading some of the software into your head. So it's uh, everything. So everybody out there, everything you want to know, there's somebody out there who's written the book on it or the course on it. And uh, it's just there for you to consume. Couldn't agree more wholeheartedly, and I'm a complete audible junkie, um, and I probably rip through at least 15 audiobooks a year, if not more. And it's just like you said, it's just in that drive to work or drive to go out and, and do different things that I'm doing, and I'm hitting 20, 30 minutes a day. When you add that up, it's it adds up almost to the equivalent of like a college semester that you're getting, yeah. Yeah, right? Just like just in your downtime. Yeah. And time that you were doing like, so what, as opposed to, like you said, I'm going to listen to sports radio and hear, you know, what fictitious trade Jimmy from Yonkers is going to come up with for the, for the Yankees. That, so we, that's it's gonna... funny as we went to a boxing match at, uh, when it was Staples Center years ago and uh, we're, we're driving home, Rachel's driving home and uh, I'm looking up our websites to see what people had said about the fight. And then we're getting home and I'd recorded it and I was going to watch it again. And I've got my, my laptop open, pulling up other websites. And she's like, what is wrong with you? You were there. You saw it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. This is this is like 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 the like after Monday night football, guys are listening on Tuesday morning to see what the sports reporter thought of the game that they watched. Right? Do learn read something else. I learned something else. So I will uh, also back up something and kind of tell a quick story that uh, I actually shared with you personally at Perform Better this year, and and want to thank you for the inspiration for it. Talking about that personal interaction at things like perform better. And um, I had gone to one of your original result results fitness um, courses that you did out here on the East coast when I had my facility. Um, and so took that and then you kind of challenged the room and said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And write that down. And, and I said to you, I said, look, Alan, one day I'm going to present uh, at perform better with you. And the answer is great. It was like, well, let's fucking do it. And that's a horrible Scottish accent, by the way. But but yeah. it was that stuck in my head. And it was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Now, I got stuck in this rut of kind of this imposter syndrome and not thinking I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And then finally, this year, I got to do it. And I think we actually were speaking at the same time, which was a very, very cool experience for me. And I thank you for that, um, kind of that poke in the chest to say like, yeah, do it. Don't just talk about it. I think there's a thing, and the reason I challenge people like that is um, that when some people are afraid to write that down because it becomes real, right? Like when you're still in your head, it's just like a dream, right? Like you're saying, oh, I'd like to do that one day. I'm like, right, I want you to verbalize it and write it down and come right out and say, I want to be a performer. Better. And then the other way to do it is to give yourself a deadline on it. And then I like, like what has to happen for that to happen? Right. And for you, it was overcoming the imposter syndrome part is that like, I, I, like, I, I think in the beginning, people think like, man, uh, Grey Cook and Stuart McGill and Mike Boyle will all be in my, my room and I, I don't know what to say to them. They, one, they are never going to be the guys who judge you. They're all because all of them are super cool Two, They're not your audience anyway. Right. But 
three is you've got something to offer and you're doing the world a disservice by not telling. This is when you get over yourself with marketing stuff. It goes, you're doing a disservice by not giving the world your gifts, right? And that's up to you to do it. But the most important thing for everybody listening is when you put that goal out of your head and onto paper or you verbalize it, something happens, right? And it's I, I say this like, a, I mean, how many yellow cars did you see this morning? And people are like, I, I, I don't know, none. Well, you weren't paying attention is what happened. You didn't see the yellow cars because you weren't tuned into it. When you get your goal, like I want to be a, a speaker at Perform Better, you start to realize that certain opportunities start appearing that you could do a local talk. You could do a lunch and learn with one of your clients and you, you eventually you get the reps in, right? And then you become an accomplished speaker, right? So, but until you make it real and, and my idea is at, at the end of that as a the, the, the instructor in the room, when you have the courage to write it down and verbalize it, all I have to do then is give you your first piece of encouragement, right? I could easily go, now some guys will respond to that. They'll be like, I'll show him, right? But other guys at a subconscious level, that crushes them. So your goal is when you got the courage to stand up and go, here's what I want to do. My goal is, all right, let's fucking do it. Like, what do we need? What do we need to do? Let's figure this out, right? Let, let's make our, our, our we're, we're here and we have to be here. What is that gap? That gap is usually education and action. What do we have to do? What do we have to learn? What do we have to do? What do we have to learn? What do we have to do? And then we just move it closer to the goal and then boom, here we are. So speaking at the same time, there is that pressure there of, okay, I got to outperform the person in the next room. You just recently spoke and perform better with your wife in the same time slot. Who, who really had more people in the room? Uh, I think, uh, uh, well, she's not here, right? And uh, I'll go on to this podcast. It was definitely me by a lot. No, she, uh, it's, it, the, the other part is uh, Rachel's a very accomplished speaker for guys who don't know. Like she's not a newbie to the to the field. So uh, this year, um, the Perform Better guys usually keep us apart and we speak at different times. But uh, Rachel was actually brought in as a last minute replacement for somebody in uh, Rhode Island. So she was slotted up against me. And yeah, she had a, she had a, a much bigger room than me, actually. I, I'll add, though, that um, we, I mean, we it's friendly competition. Uh, we're, I'm excited that her room is full, right? And it was actually kind of cool for us to both go at the same time because I think um, in terms of the total audience uh, in, in uh, Rhode Island, that um, we had a bigger percentage overall than we normally would have if we go separately. Right, because some people would have come to see us both, and then the other thing too is, my, I think my title was like on a, you know, client acquisition or, or something. Hers is uh, coaching women over forty, right? So that that title was hot. Like I told her, just teach that, do a new version of that same target market next year. So yeah, but she definitely had had more in my room. But uh, the other thing I'll add for the the young presenter, um, the regardless of how many is in your room they came to see you, right? And you, I seen Anthony Ren, I wrote uh, an article, I think he saw like you know, Metallica or Black Sabbath or, or something in, in a small bar in upstate New York. And he goes, they played like it was Madison Square Garden, right, on a Saturday night. Like they they didn't care, it was small. They just came and they rocked the mic and did a great show. So I, I hear some young coaches say, oh man, I'm up against Mike Boyle or Greg Cook and no one's going to be in my room. Yes, there will be. And those people choose to come and see you over everybody else. So you owe them your best stuff, right? And my first ever talk for PB was last on a Sunday in Chicago. And maybe there was- yeah, when the, Like the guy's hitting you in the foot with the vacuum in the hotel. Yeah, yeah it's like every, <laughs> the lights are all off and they're just they're pulling the chairs out. As I'm there. There's eight people in my room, but uh, that's where I, I've went on to do, you know, seminars in, around the world. And I've been a keynote, I perform better, but- it all starts with you. You do your show because these people come to see you. Yeah, there was a post that I put up a couple of weeks back talking about that with uh, using a video Tom Brady had talking about when he was at Michigan. And he said he would only get two reps in practice because he was like fifth or sixth string. And he was bitching to one of his coaches and his coach said, look, you can't control that. You can only control those two reps. And so he said that completely changed my mind. And I made those two reps like it was 
the Super Bowl with two minutes left. And he goes in two reps, turned into four and four reps turned into eight and eight turned into eventually he became who he was because every rep is important. So, and I said that same story of when, when I started out 25 years ago and the only clients I got were from the free corrugated box at the front desk that said, enter to win a free training, training session. And I would train them all. And I treated those free sessions like I was training the, the you know, the Super Bowl MVP because I wanted to do that someday. And you don't just wait until that someday to be that person. Yeah, I think you, you um, and I think some young coaches listening to this, that, uh, that there's nothing wrong with, you know, sponsoring a few clients, sponsoring a few new clients for a short period of time and get some more work in. Like, I mean, you got to see it, you know, Brady's at Michigan, that the seventh string quarterback is getting no reps. Right, he's he would give anything for two reps, right? And that's the idea, is it? And you you move up, and I think that um you there is a like, and if you think of buckets of personal development, it starts with knowledge, which you can get from books and courses and mentors, but then it goes to skills, and the only way to get skills is with reps, right? So if if I was starting over right now, I would be recruiting clients to train with me for four weeks in exchange for testimonials and social media posts, because I got space anyway. Right, I may as well fill it up with a few people and and get the get the reps in and and uh, train some people and then eventually you you'll reach a level where um you know I you'll do speaking engagements for free at some point and at some at some point in your career you just uh it doesn't make sense anymore you're able to to make a living from that but it starts with knowledge then it goes to skills and skills is about getting your reps in. All right, so we got a couple minutes left. Let's first talk about um what you're working on now and and what kind of projects you're involved in. You've already told us very clearly you want nobody buying your old books, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're out of date and worthless, but tell what we should do. Cause what, if I want to be Alan Cosgrove, learn from Alan Cosgrove, what's the best way to do that? Um, that our, I have a membership website. It's um, it, it should be direct to resultsfitnessinnercircle.com. But, uh, the, the actual URL is resultsfitnessuniversity.com slash inner circle for I, every course I've ever done, every seminar I've done is recorded and uploaded there. And I add one new one a month, um, which was uh, really started doing this during the, the lockdown. So a, a lot of it was just recorded me sitting in this room and you know, on, on Zoom recording them. Um, that's the, and I do a, a monthly like open call where people can come and, and see me. So if you're going to invest in anything, that that's where I would, I would uh, direct your resources. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and I get a lot of messages there, but I do try my best to to answer anybody that, that reaches out to me. Um, I have a free group on Facebook, but if you go to the Instagram page, there's a little link tree thing there and you can see all, all the resources there. And in terms of what I'm working on personally, um, we talked earlier about the UFC. UFC is an organization for a sport called mixed martial arts. And most people have heard of Spartan training or Tough Mudder. They're organizations for a sport called obstacle course racing. So I just got back uh, about a month ago from the World Obstacle Course Racing Championships, which is in Belgium. And I was the head coach for the US national team. So I think that sport is uh, growing and it's uh, really, I got into it because um, no one had really figured out the training stuff for it, Eric, you know? Like it, like it was all like kind of, it was a, a unique thing, right? And so I, I was intrigued by how would you develop this athlete for a sport that didn't used to exist, right? Like if you took over a rugby team, there's good stuff out there you can look at, right? If you took over anything, but you know, if, if there was just a tournament out here right, for underwater hockey, I'm serious, underwater hockey, like, I'm like, all right, that the cardio requirements for that might be a little unique, right? I might have to create something. So I, I get interested with the the obstacle course racing, and uh, I'll be doing some work with the USA OCR, which is the governing body. Uh, and then um, I've really leaned into coach education. Uh, I still train a few people at, at the gym, and I, but I, in terms of hierarchy of activities, I think developing my staff becomes higher than programming, becomes higher than coaching. Right, so I really leaned into that, and that's kind of how the results fitness inner circle came. Where where I'm hoping to, I don't think the world needs more gyms; it needs better people in them, better coaches, and better trainers. And I think that's my um, I feel passionate about it, and I think that that's what I um my calling is right now. Well, we and certainly that, appreciate it. My uh, my book behind me there there the uh, secrets of successful program design. That's the the newest one. It's the first one aimed really at coaches and not just at uh, enthusiasts. 
Awesome. Well, we'll have all those links on there. And, and before we wrap up, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, that, you know, um, you and Mike are, are part of a, a special club and it's a club I want no part of being in. Um, and we talk about like what we teach as a living and we're even labeled as strength coaches, like, but strength is not how much you could lift or, or, you know, how much you could move strength is what you two guys have done. And you're both cancer survivors and you've been able to not only get through that personally, but you've been able to take that and inspire so many people with your story. And so with that, I need to, uh, you know, commend you for that. And, and it's been an inspiration for, for so many people beyond what fitness is. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a, there's a phrase like, uh, you know, how, how strong are you and being strong is all you have left. Right, like that. That's the the thing. So yeah, and it's uh, my. It's funny. My checkup is next week, and uh, I feel fine. But it's still like a you know, mind game when you're going going in for that. You know, Mike just hit. Mike just hit his two year mark, and and you know the the quote. And I think this is a perfect way to wrap it up. That I saw that someone posted of yours is there. There is no bad days. There's just good days and great days. Yeah, I I, I think I got that from Lance Armstrong actually. That after cancer, there's no such thing as a bad day. Only good days and great days. And I, I try to live by that. Love it. And I appreciate your time. Appreciate everything you do, Alan. Thank you very much. Good, Eric. All right. Thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.